is Sunday School for Misfits, hosted by me, Dr. Selena Stone, a podcast where we, the Misfits, explore the good, the bad, and the questionable of our church experiences and the Christian beliefs and perspectives that we were taught. Welcome and thank you for listening. Hi everyone, welcome back for another episode of Sunday School for Misfits. I can't believe we're on, on episode 8 already of season 2. It feels like it's really flying by. It's hilarious because at the start of the series, I was thinking I'm doing 10 episode chunks in a series. Am I going to have enough to do 10 episodes on for a church girl series? And right now I have episodes that I'm like, I could have added this in as well. <laughs> because once we started, it just kept opening up more and more themes. And I just kept thinking of more and more women I know whose stories are so important and whose perspectives are so important. So I feel like I've, I'm finishing this off. We've got a few more episodes of the season, but there is still so much to unpack. And I think in the series to come, there'll be so much more to do. So I'll just have to think about how to organise some of the themes and the ideas for, for future series. But honestly, it's been such a joy to just hear people sharing their, their truths on the podcast. And I'm really thankful for all of your affirming comments and the support of what I'm trying to do, what I'm, the space that I'm trying to hold through the podcast and this season especially, it's really kept me going, honestly, because it can be such a vulnerable thing to be out there sharing your thoughts and using a platform to, to bring to the forefront voices that we often have preferred to keep in the background. And I know that for some people, this is like revolutionary. Some people find it disturbing. Some people, some of you have just found it freeing, I think, because you're hearing stories that resonate with your own and my hope and my prayer is that as we highlight these realities for us and we process them together that there might be a release of shame um, and the burden of guilt that we carry that so many of us carry as we try to figure out our complex lives will just be eased a little bit when we re- when we realise that we're not alone. So that's my hope and I know that from what some of you said that this is what you're experiencing so it gives me so much joy honestly. We're going to have a change of um, course a little bit today from the hot topics. We've really been through it, haven't we, folks? <laughs> we've, been, we've been through it. But there's one topic that I think I wanted to deal with today, looking back to my younger years and the intensity of them. By now, you will have gathered that I was quite an intense person when I was younger. And I think I've, funnily enough, become more relaxed as I've got older, which I probably think is like a coping mechanism for life going left way too many times. I think if I didn't embrace flexibility at some point and keep on learning to embrace flexibility, I would probably have snapped by now, probably multiple times. But the intensity that I experienced when I was younger, I think was partly internal in that my personality, I think, can be wired towards big questions. I think I take a lot from my dad who has strong principles and and thinks about things a lot and likes to plan and prepare and have things done well and and all that stuff can be very intense because of my personality which also as you know by now was slightly I want to be that perfect good Christian girl for my parents and church and and please God and please everyone else I think it meant that I was a sponge for all the messages which reinforced my natural way of thinking so I was a sponge for all the messages about doing things well gaining gaining perfection being diligent and so that translated into me trying to be the best Christian that I could. 
And on the surface, I think that's probably not a bad idea, a bad thing to want to do things well. I don't think it's bad to want to do things well at all. But I think when you're a kid, you really need to just play. <laughs> you really, really need to just get to play. And I think I spent a lot of my younger years worrying about doing things properly when I should have been just enjoying things and, and exploring more. So I feel like as an older person now, I'm living that exploration. I'm capturing my inner child is running free. And that's probably why I'm, I'm willing to play with ideas and, and explore things now that I, when I was younger, I didn't think I could explore. And I think it's really been part of my maturing has actually ironically been about me discovering my inner child and, and, and having the space to you know, like when a kid's in a playground, they're just, they're just running around until the parent says, be careful, they'll just keep going. And that is how I feel like I'm living right now. So I, I reserve the right to change my mind and to keep on thinking more and to learning more and growing more. And I think that's probably what we should all be doing as we grow is, is thinking new thoughts and discovering new ideas. But I think that's partly why I'm enjoying the podcast is because it's given me space to articulate some of this journey to all of you, some of you who I know, and most of you who I don't know, but it's an honour that you're even here listening to me talk every week. But one of the big messages that I think I got from church, and that wasn't just church, this is very much like family, parents, myself, was this question of what is your purpose? And I feel like some of my peers probably didn't really catch this as deeply as I did. But as I say, because I was inclined towards intensity anyway, and my perfectionist streak was pretty strong, when I heard people talk about your purpose, I immediately just thought, okay, I really need to figure out what this is so I can do things well and be good and please God and everyone else. And so it really became quite a strong, a big question in my mind. Um, And I think there's definitely two sides to this talk of that purpose. So on the one hand, I think it was powerful for me as a young black girl from the inner city of Birmingham to receive quite a clear notion that God had a purpose for my life. And this message came to me, as I've said, clearly from my parents, from youth leaders, from adults at church. And in fact, it wasn't often even just purpose. It was like a plan, like a specific plan that God had for you. And for me, when I heard this idea that God had a plan or a purpose for my life, alongside all the very glamorized stories in the Bible of Joseph and Esther and Daniel, you think this actually sounds quite great. You know what I mean? Like Esther was a queen, with lot, I imagined at least. She had lots of nice clothes. She had all those spa treatments before she went to meet the king. Joseph had a bit of a rough start, but eventually he was like in a palace, prime minister, lots of money. Daniel was a leader in public life. You kind of look at these people and think this looks quite cool. But on the other hand, the the pursuit of a plan or a purpose for your life can fill you with anxiety. And this is how it it affected me. It was kind of a combination of of both. Because every decision that I made, even at 16, 17, 18, when I'm choosing GCSEs, A-levels, and then university degree, everything was filled with so much stress because it's like every decision has some internal destiny attached to it and huge importance. So everything just becomes so much more intense. Decision-making just becomes exhausting when you're living in that kind of intensity. And that was me at like 16, 17, 18. But I think that the kind of talk about purpose and plans for your life leads to a kind of tension in relation to how you then deal with life's challenges. Because if you have a sense that heaven is on your side, making the path straight, and God will remove barriers or obstacles from your path, then as soon as you face a challenge, you might assume you're on the wrong path and end up taking a random left turn into some bushes. Follow Follow the analogy with me. And if you reach a difficult moment in your job or in your relationship or in your goals, then then you might think, well, maybe God doesn't want this for me then because suddenly this relationship isn't going that well. We become hypersensitive to difficulty as if it's a sign that something is not for us. 
And I think there's probably some truth to this discernment in the early stages. For example, if you're like on the path to buying, to moving house and you've tried everything you can and it isn't working out, then maybe it isn't the right time. Or um, if you're just trying to get to know someone new and it's not working out well, then maybe it's not really, you're not really aligned well with that person. You have to kind of let it go and move on. But I think once you're in the thing, like once you've bought the house, once you've got the marriage, like I think we have to learn to commit. And as you know, by now, I'm not talking about commit through everything because there's some things where it's like, this really can't carry on. But I think we can go to the other extreme of thinking if something gets difficult, it must be bad for me. Something it must be like something I have to stop or maybe God's calling me away from this thing now because it's difficult. And this, I think, can be hard because in life, we have to follow through some things. It's how we grow in maturity. It's how we build a life worth having. We have to persevere. It's discerning, of course, when and when and how to persevere. That's, that's the challenging thing sometimes. But the other side of this can be that if we have a view of God's sovereign plan that assumes everything that happens to us is from God or it's part of God's plan or purpose for us, we end up accepting whatever comes to us without asking any questions. Because we start to think, well, if God wants me to have X, then God make, will make sure I get it. So I'll sit in my house and do nothing and then it will come to me. Or we think if, it's, if we have a particular job, then it's God that put us there. And so no matter how much people bully, disrespect or discriminate against us, we think I'm going to stay because this is God's plan for me to be here. Um, and you can see how they can, this can kind of get problematic quite fast. And then I think sometimes we also look for spiritual meaning in things that just are the way they are. So this, I think, happens a lot when it comes to suffering. You know, this thing happened to us because God wanted to do X. Maybe it was just horrible that this thing happened. Like Maybe we don't have to try to find God's sovereignty in the horrible, evil things that go on in the world. Maybe it's just because people are crap sometimes and they do evil things. And that's the reason why there isn't some divine plan that God made you experience abuse or made that person get sick or made that person die in order for to use it for X. I think that is one of the most like, twisted ways of seeing suffering and evil is to try to say that this is part of a divine plan that had to happen to you in particular. It makes suffering and trauma very personal. And it's not surprising that people have so much anger against God if that's how they've been told to see suffering. That doesn't mean that we might not learn and grow through the things we suffer. That doesn't mean that we might not become new people and get empowered in unexpected ways as we persevere through difficult things. But I would never want to start talking like, God said, yeah, let her experience that abuse, let him experience that trauma, because that's really part of my plan for them. I just think that's a bit twisted, personally. But it's also worth saying, though, that for some people, and I don't know how they live like this, but I do admire it, actually. People are just not wired in this way. And they are just not looking for this intense purpose and everything. I really envy these people because I think that it's quite a simple and beautiful way to live. There are people who are just content living their lives, loving their families and friends, living in harmony with God, going to church, doing their whatever they do, who do not have these kinds of intense thoughts. And as I say, I, I, I don't even know what that's like, but it sounds lovely. <laughs> And they're quite happy with a sense of purpose. You know, those people who say, my purpose is to love my family. My purpose is to, to care for other people. My purpose is to make a positive contribution to the world. You know, they, and they're satisfied with that. And I think it's such a beautiful way to live. But yeah, so I think some people, I don't think, have the same intensity. And of course, that can go to like the extreme of, 
this person just existed through day-to-day life, which is, to me, quite sad and probably quite boring, I think. So I don't want to go to that extreme. But there is a middle ground, isn't there, between, like, I don't have any sense of purpose and don't really want one versus everything has to have purpose. And I think there must be somewhere, there's probably a spectrum and we're probably all somewhere on the spectrum between those two extremes. But the interesting thing I think about this question of purpose, and this occurred to me as I was processing this, is that I think purpose can really be bound up with the ego. And what I mean by this is that sometimes we want an impressive purpose that can change the world for good, for sure, but also because in part, we get our sense of worth from doing things. We want to be known as an entrepreneur, the activist, the change maker, the leader, the great parent. And so we're we're uncomfortable being in the quiet, being still, being with ourselves. We struggle with being content, being unimpressive, in inverted commas. So we can struggle with it, with not being seen as successful. And of course, that can be a mixture, I think, of, yes, we want to make the world better. Yes, we want to do good things in the world. But I think it really can mix up with our ego needs, our needs, our need to feel, to present a certain version of ourselves to others. And the questions I think we have to ask ourselves, if you are the kind of person who leans towards that, is how content can you be living very simply with no one knowing who you are, feeling quote-unquote purposeless? Do you think that your worth is attached to your doing? Do you think that really deep down that you're worthy of love because you exist or only because you're doing lots of things? And also because sometimes I think our rush for purpose can, I think, be a distraction from what's happening in our inner world that when we don't want to attend to our anxiety, our fear, our feelings of inadequacy on the inside, we project outwards by being really busy with a sense of purpose that everyone else can measure. So it's something I think to be mindful of. And the problems of the ego and purpose, I think, can happen because we tend to think of purpose in a very, very individualised way. We, and this is how I always heard it or thought about it growing up. It was about my purpose. So we often think about our individual purpose as opposed to our collective purpose. And so we can get very self-absorbed and stressed out, even on a subconscious level. So I'm suggesting that we should think about our individual purpose or our individual calling or God's plan for your life, whatever it is you want to call it within an understanding of our collective purpose. And I think that's good for a couple of reasons. Firstly, it avoids this egotistical thought process that is just about you and nothing else. My purpose, for example, is to get rich or die trying, that type of thing. You know, it's one thing to want to build wealth for the sake of what you can do with it for your family and community, provide a home, create jobs, improve something or whatever. But just wealth for its own sake, for your status and indulgence is purposeless. I'm probably quite boring, I imagine. Like, how many cars can you have? Some of you are thinking, I would have quite a few, actually, Selena. <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, it's not it's not for anything. You know, you do not want to do more in the world than just be on, on holiday and just eating. You know what I mean? Like, for me, that's that would be quite a boring way to live, to be honest. But secondly, it's much more consistent to see your own purpose within a collective purpose, with a communal worldview that we find in the scriptures, which jars with the very Western obsession we can have with the individual. And the part of the problem, I think, is that we read the Bible often. If we do read it, we read it alone. And this is one of our evangelical inheritances of the devotion we have in the morning on our own. 
which is not how Christians have always read the Bible, in fact, or even how a lot of Christians read the Bible today. But we tend to read, for example, a verse like, I know the plans I have for you, as if it's written for you as an individual, when it's written for you, plural. And it's also a problem with English, because in a lot of other languages, you have the you individual and the you collective, but in English, it's the same word. So you can't always even tell when you're translating the Greek or the Hebrew, whether this is you individual or you collective. Because so many times you see God speaking to the whole nation, the whole collective group of people. Now, of course, you might read that and say, yes, God has plans for me. And that's how lots of people read that passage of scripture. But the purpose of that scripture was to speak to a community. So if you're going to think about yourself, you have to do it after you thought about how it was supposed to be understood. Does that make sense? That if you, you can't just twist up the scriptures and be like, you know what, I'm going to just take that for me and not pay attention to what the writer of this was trying to do. That is like somebody, like you writing a text to your friend today and in a in hundred years time, someone's taking your word out of context to say that's what Selena meant. That's not what Selena meant. Selena said what she said <laughs> to her friend over there and that's what she meant. You can draw meaning from that, from the message Selena said. But for you to act like you know what she was meaning and taking it out of context to say something totally different is problematic. So that's what we can end up doing with the scriptures. So with this Jeremiah 29 verse, for example, the famous one that we all quote, God's plan for the people as a whole after they became exiles, when their land was taken over, was not to leave them in exile forever, but that God would allow them to remain there for a while and would then rebuild them as a people in their own place. So yes, I can think right now in my life, for example, I'm in a difficult place and this scripture might encourage me that God can bring me out of this in a new season of life because God has plans for me. But I also need to think of this in relation to the collective. So as a people right now, we're in a difficult place in the world. So what does it mean for God to have a hope and a future for us after COVID in a cost of living crisis? How does my personal reading fit with the collective? Because if it's conflicting, I've probably lost something somewhere. If my reading of Jeremiah 29 leads me to think well I know the plans God has for me so I'm gonna run a business exploit my workers so I can get rich that's what happens when we read this verse without thinking about the collective because when you think about it in relation to the collective it's God has a plan for us which means how I my vocate my calling my discernment of what I want to do my my ideas of purpose cannot be conflicting with the well-being of my neighbor this is what the scriptures are helping us to understand So what I often do instead, I think, is talk about God's intentions for us, because I think the planned stuff can get quite intense and also can make it sound like you don't have no options. (laughs) Now, when you think God has a plan, it's like, okay, God planned for you to marry this person, God planned for you to do this. I've definitely met people where they would say to me, this is the only person I could have married. And of course, you never really know because you've only made one set of choices. But I do think that people can think, okay, God has chosen my spouse, God has chosen the house I'm going to buy, God has chosen the job that I have, and therefore I'm just following a plan. So instead I think it's important to talk about God's intentions for us. Before I even think about God's intent, God, before I even attempt to think about God's purpose for me, And I think I probably gave up on the plan language when I was about 17, because to my surprise, God was not telling me what to do when I asked God. (laughs) 
So I was asking God about all kinds of choices I was making, you know, even before uni at that point, I was probably asking God about what A-levels I should do. I feel like God was like, babes, come on now. I've got, I've got big fish to fry over here and you're here disturbing my peace about GCSEs. I think God probably thought, babes, you can do this one on your own, do you know what I mean? <laughs> but this is why for me, I don't follow this God has a plan thing because I'm like, I think God is very open-handed with what the things that we choose when they're caught up within God's wider intention, which I'll get to in a minute. So I think the language of intention allows us to recognise that God is not forcing us, but recognising our own agency, because we can hear and be mindful of God's intentions or not. I think it conveys more openness, which is how I experience God's presence in my life. God's presence in my life is not a man with a leash forcing me along a path. I don't want to go down. God is often inviting me, without manipulation or coercion, into an opportunity, an exploration, which I can choose or not. And either way, I'm going to be beloved and accepted. It's not a matter of, I'm now going to be punished because I haven't made a particular choice. That's where the intensity comes from, right? It's thinking that God's intentions for us is such and such a narrow road, that if we take one step left, we're going to drop into some abyss and that's going to be the end of it, spiritually or emotionally or whatever else. Once we make a decision, there's no coming back from it. Once you made that decision now, you've got you in it, you've got to stick by it, you can't take left, you can't go right. It's very, very intense. And I just don't think it's helpful. And I don't think it's reflective either of the kind of openness with which we see people's lives being manoeuvred in the scriptures as well. I would say, for me at least, it's helped to let go of that intensity um, and to actually realise that if I think God is trying to coerce me into something or manipulate me through fear, then that is a very that is not a definition of mercy, grace, love, gentleness, anything. It's the opposite of what we say God is. God is inviting me into exploring more fully the life that God has for me if I choose to explore it if I allow fear or doubt to hold me back then I won't get to experience that and that will be its own punishment you know what I mean it's not like God has to add on additional stuff to to really teach me a lesson I just I just it's just not good it's just not a helpful way of thinking about God it's, it's very inaccurate and unhealthy I would say So where do we get a sense of God's intentions then as a framing for thinking about our own choices and the use of our time, our lives and our energy? I like Genesis for this and the story of creation as a basis since it comes at the start of the Bible and sets up a kind of first things first right at the start. And as I said on the the Instagram live we had a couple weeks ago, it's generally agreed among those who look into these things in the Old Testament that this is not a literal story but a creation myth similar to lots of the stories that were told by ancient communities at the time in the ancient Near East. This doesn't mean it's not true, but it's just not necessarily true in the way that we think of truth. But I think in relation to the question of God's intention, it gives a pretty good and quite lovely picture. And it's worth saying that I think we can think in a very human-centred way about creation, as in that that we are the centre of the world, And the Genesis account does actually demand that we see ourselves as part of a much bigger picture, an interconnected picture, rather than thinking it's all about us, you know. And it's kind of in our language of things, talking about the environment. It's like the environment for what? For us. So we see the the natural world through the lenses of what we want from it. It's our environment. Creation has a value in itself, regardless of whether we're here or not. And ironically, we haven't always been here, like, as human beings. We haven't always been here. 
even in the Genesis account or in the stories of, you know, from scientists, we haven't always been here while the earth has been. So I think that it's important that we don't have this kind of we are the centre of the universe type thing. We really haven't been here all the time. At the rate that we're going, we won't be here much longer. <laughs> That's not funny. I'm laughing because it's because we're so stupid, not because it's funny. <laughs> but yes, um, human annihilation is not funny. So nobody quote me and then be like, yes, Selena was laughing about human destruction on the podcast. That's not what I'm doing. But I think that the Genesis account does make it clear that we're interconnected with creation. And it's important that we remember that, how our behaviour is affecting the world that we need to live. Like, if the trees don't grow, we're dead, we're finished. If the sea dries up, it all gets too hot, it's game over. Like, we, we need to remember that we depend upon the earth that exists for us to survive. And in the story of creation, we find that at the beginning, God, who makes God's self known to us in various ways, which is what it means for God to be Trinity, setting out to create the world. And attention is given to the creation of everything. It's all made with care and considered to be good. And when God makes humanity, God says we're very good. And then God gives humanity responsibility for governing the earth, for naming creatures, caring for one another. The intention then that we see here, and this is the truth I think is communicated, whether or not you believe in a literal reading of Genesis, is that God has intended us to thrive, to live in harmony with God, with one another and the created world. So this is how I understand the starting point of God's intentions for us as part of God's creation. I think about all the time, I think about the image I have in my mind is God walking with Adam, with humanity in the cool of the day, just being, not commanding, not ruling over, not dominating, just being with and loving. And this for me has to be the start of how we think about God's intentions, God's purpose for us. And then through the Old Testament, we have lots of language about covenant between God and humanity. And in the Old Testament, this is really about Israel as, as God's chosen people and as a foretaste of what would then be made available to all people, regardless of their race or nation. And this covenant is about commitment. So God demonstrates a consistent determination to remain in relationship with humanity, to call us away from destruction and towards goodness, justice, peace and doing what's right. And in exchange, we as humanity commit to following God's ways, to choosing to act in line with God's nature and will, which leads us to life and away from death. And this is a general vibe of the Old Testament. The people of Israel are like, they're doing their own thing and they're suffering the consequences, then they're coming back and repenting. And every time God, st- God stays there, God is never done with them. Even when God has to let, let them experience the consequences of their bad behaviour, God is still standing there present and ready to engage with them again. So that's that for me is what the lesson of the Old Testament helps us to see is God's persistence in, in openness to us, despite the fact that we love to move mad. This is, at least from a Christian perspective, this I think is one of the core points of the Old Testament. But we see this idea of covenant playing out on collectively, but also on, a, on an individual level. But the individual is always blessed for the sake of the collective. So for example, with Abraham... God's blessing to him means that his children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren will all be blessed. All of his descendants will be blessed. And in the New Testament, those who believe in Jesus are talked about as being heirs of Abraham. So the blessing goes even beyond bloodlines towards people who, by faith, have become heirs of Abraham, who have become Abraham's descendants. And in the New Testament, then this idea of covenant, the meaning of God's promises to us, are made evident in the person of Jesus. Jesus is one who shows us to our faces 
in a face-to-face way that God's intentions for us are healing. You know how many times Jesus heals people in the Old in the New Testament? And we think about this purely as a kind of, as a Pentecostal growing up, that was about physical healing. Like, we're going to pray for people to be physically healed. But there's all kinds of things we need healing from. And what we see about the presence of Jesus is wherever Jesus is, healing is there. Wherever Jesus is, evil is being challenged and overturned. And goodness is, and mercy and peace is being established. This is what we see of God's intentions for us in the person of Jesus. And Jesus brings those things with him wherever he goes and he extends it to all. And then in the early church, the promise is extended to people who are not even descendants of Israel. Because even Jesus has a struggle with this. I know that for some of you it's too much to even say that. But Jesus understands his work to be very much limited to the people of Israel. That's why when Gentiles, people who are non-Jews, that's what Gentiles means. When they come to Jesus, he's like, this ain't for you, sis, because the time's not right for you. Like, or this is for, I can't give the gifts to you that should be for Israel because that's what's in his mind. I don't understand how it works that Jesus doesn't get that this is going to be for the Gentiles too. I don't even know how to get to that conversation, but I needed some systematic theologian who spends their whole time thinking about doctrine to help us figure that out because that for me is really interesting that it's not until the early church gets established that Peter has the vision that makes him go to Cornelius and then he starts to realise actually this covenant, this promise, this intention of God is not just for Israel anymore, it's actually for everyone, for all the people of all the whole world and suddenly you have this shift where actually, and that's where Paul's ministry takes off, it's going to the Gentiles and telling all of them about Jesus and all this kind of stuff so I think it's interesting how this covenant, this intention ripples out from the people of Israel to encompass all people so that all people are drawn into the promise of God. And the Old, well, the Old Testament is interesting to me because I think there are so many people who stand out in the Old Testament text as having a really clear calling. So going back to what I was saying about the individual and the collective calling and purpose, it's really interesting how this works in the Old Testament because, I mean, I love reading the Old Testament because some of the stories are great. Um, but this is why I think we can hold on to the idea, I think, of some people having a, a calling that kind of stands out because of their gifts in the world. I don't really know how it works, honestly. But some of the best stories we have in the scriptures are of individuals, these iconic characters, whether they are people we think of as primarily good or bad. And again, I said before, like that whole binary doesn't really help because we're all kind of a combination. But we see stories told about them where God is involved in so many details, bringing people along paths that seem bound to fail. Like, how does Joseph end up in the palace, right, after being in prison? How, after being accused of seducing, like, the wife of, was it Potiphar? Potiphar's wife. He somehow ends up in a palace, like, where's the, who did the due diligence check on the reference? Anybody did a check today, he wouldn't have got the job, do you know what I mean? But somehow he ends up in there anyway. You know, how does Esther, who's an orphan, from a random little town, become the queen of a nation that's not even her own? Like, she's gone to this place as a captive, and she ends up as a queen in the palace. Like, how do these things happen? These are the stories that captured my imagination as a kid and made me think that with God, any, literally anything is possible. And it, as I'm saying this now, it's making me feel excited about, you know, I still have some of that in me, honestly. But with all the things I say about life's complicated and God, I can't get my head around God all the time and I don't know what's going on in different areas of my life. Actually, sometimes I'm like, ooh, this could be... Like, who knows what's possible, you know? Like, who knows what's possible? 
if God really has an intention for you, like, it makes me think that nothing can stop it because this is the, the what the scriptures give us, this real sense of heightened expectation for what can do with someone's life that might seem very small, but it can become so significant. And it honestly makes me think about people who, like, in the world in general, the icons, people, like, all these people who have marked history on a global scale. Sometimes I think, like, were these people set apart for this before they were born? Or did they simply, like, step into a moment once they were living? Like, was this written in the stars for them, written in their destiny? Or did they just, like, of their own volition, just create iconic art, this music, this political career or whatever it is some of it just feels so unbelievable that you could just make that all happen yourself like there must be some kind of divine alignment going on that makes these things happen for people because sometimes it's like they can't even tell you how things happen because it's not all been down to them that's why when I hear people speak about God I often think I, I can totally understand why you would think about God I heard Fat Joe talk about this once I listened to his interview recently where he was talking about his journey growing up in the projects and how now obviously he's a really wealthy rapper and all of this stuff but the poverty he came from when he told his story he talked about God speaking to him and guiding him and it made me think I'm not surprised that you will talk about God because you're thinking on what planet do I end up where I am thinking about where I started because how many thousands of men in America want to be rappers or in the UK or anywhere else to make it in the world, and only a tiny proportion do. And if you're one of the one of the few that does, you really must believe in God because you're thinking like, how is it possible, right, that of all the people that somehow things align, that it's you that ended up in this beautiful house with all this stuff, and it's just it's crazy. Like I think about these people's journeys all the time, but I I have a very generous understanding of calling, and I do think that. It's not just something that Christians have. I honestly think, like, I watch people's biographies and um, documentaries and think your journey has been absolutely crazy and some tiny moment just opens up a whole new future for this person. The other week I was watching Bohemian Rhapsody on Netflix, which is about Queen, the rock band, and Freddie Mercury in particular. All and now, did I know Freddie Mercury was Indian? I'm telling you, when I watched this show, I said to myself, who have I been looking at? Because all my life I've looked at Freddie Mercury and I'm sure he was white, I'm telling you, I've seen this man's face and I'm sure he's white. And I literally Googled him when I saw the, when I watched the film and I saw his family, I said, what's going on here? And I Googled him and it said that he's Indian. I couldn't believe it. I could not believe it. But anyway, the the real point of this story is that the story, his story, at least the way it's told in the film, it revolves around him going to watch his band play and then the lead singer quits and Freddie Mercury happens to see the band and then, like, goes to chat to them afterwards. And as he's, as the guy quits, he comes along and chats to them. And then, where he sings and he's amazing. And they jo- help him join the band. And that's the beginning of Queen, right? That's, that's how it all begins. And it's like, you're thinking, but if that guy hadn't quit on that particular day, and he hadn't gone on that particular day, like, he's to say that he would have got to join the band and this would have all happened. But anyway, I, I say all of this to say... But when I think about these things, I think, like, is destiny at work in this? Like, even for people who are not, they're not Christian, they're not trying to do some huge humanitarian thing. They're just wanting to be able to express their full selves in the world. They're creating art and music and all these amazing things that make our life what it is. And they just need that opportunity. And I think, like, it's fascinating to me to think, is it accidental? Is it just coincidence? Like, who decides who gets this or not? Or is it just life and we can't understand it?
anyway, I think that for me, this makes me really excited. You can probably hear the excitability. Excit- excitability? Excitement. <laughs> I'm talking too much, you know. You can probably hear the excitement in me because I honestly think that this whole thing about futures and potentials and, and purpose and, and creating a life is just so exciting, honestly. And I do think that it makes me excited for my own path and the different avenues that it might lead down. You know, you might take an avenue and it might bring you back on the main path you were on before. Like, who knows how this works? But I think that holding this idea of God's intentions for us, us collectively, helps me to imagine what might be right for me to do. When I look at what's in my hands, what my journey has been so far, what my experiences have been, all of this helps to sharpen my sense of what might I do now. And I also think that our sense of purpose, our sense of calling can shift and change. We often think of a calling, a purpose, a path, a plan. And I think in this life, there can be multiple. In this season now, my purpose might be this. And who knows, in five years time, it could be totally different. My life could look totally different in a year's time. Who is to know? And this is the beauty, as well as the stress of life that's unpredictable. And we just don't know what's around the corner. And so I believe very much that nothing is wasted. But I also have had times when I've struggled to imagine what my life might be, especially once I realised that life was unexpected, when I realised life was scary and painful. But I think part of the healing in me has been allowing me to imagine again. Because sometimes life punches you so hard in the gut that you think I will never be able to hope or imagine again for myself or for my life. Because life gets real like that sometimes. I was probably in this state for about three years around and after my mum had died I literally thought I'm never gonna hope for anything good again and sometimes I still struggle with it because I'm like well that really did happen and what does what does that actually mean for me but I think the return of hope is a sign of healing and this is what I hope for all of us for you all for me as we journey through this life that whatever we think about God's plan God's purpose God's intention for us that we will move through the world with a sense that we're being held that everything is not down to us and that there's a capacity for us to explore and to see what's possible and to dream and to do what we can, to to take hold of what's in our hands and to treat it as a precious gift, not only for ourselves but for the collective because that I think is ultimately what purpose in a Christian sense I think is about and I think that can help us regardless of whether we think we're Christian or not because I think that's just human, isn't it? Thanks again, everyone, for listening to me sharing my thoughts. I really hope that helps, and I hope you have a good rest of the week. Just treat yourself kindly, you know. We're really going through it as a collective right now, and some of us more than others, to be fair, but we're going through it together. And um, so treat yourself kindly, look after yourself, look after those you love, look after those you don't like. And I'll be recording again for you very soon. <laughs>